Well, hello again. I'm Tony Payne. Welcome to another edition of Two Ways News. Uh, great to have you with us, although I should say not with us, but with me. It's just me this week. Philip, unfortunately, has been laid low with a bug and isn't able to join us. But hopefully he'll be back with us next time. And in the meantime, this week, I want to talk about something that we've touched on to some extent in recent weeks. I want to talk about the marginal status of Christianity in our society, the sense that we're increasingly deplatformed or otherwise locked out of many opportunities for preaching the gospel publicly in our culture. And so I've written a little piece called How Will God's Word Be Unchained? How Will God's Word Be Unchained? You can read this piece at the Two Ways News website or via the email newsletter, but I'll chat through its contents now here in this podcast, as well as coming to some questions from the mailbag, from the electronic mailbag, a little bit later on. I wonder whether there'll come a time in the not-too-distant future when to speak the word of God in our society will be to risk prison. Do you think that will happen? Sometimes I do. Then again, other times I think surely not. But then again, the next week I think, well, quite possibly. I flip between these different reactions. Just when I'm feeling a bit more optimistic about things, I see the insane overreaction to Posey Parker's recent visit to Australia and New Zealand. Uh, for those of you who haven't caught up with this news, uh, Posey Parker is a women's activist. Her rallies consist of setting up a microphone and inviting women to speak about what they want to speak about. But of course, this has been received and cast as an anti-trans activity and has been met with violent protest. And when you see it happening, you've got to wonder, will that happen to us one day? Will there be a baying mob surrounding a beach mission tent with activists screaming and holding up signs saying Minimites is child abuse. It's hard to say really, you can certainly imagine it. But whatever the future holds, it's certainly true that the preaching of God's word is restricted in all kinds of ways in our culture today. As we've discussed here on Two Ways News in recent episodes, there are now many public forums within our society where Christians are pretty systematically excluded. Christians will still be allowed to appear on certain things on TV interview panels. They'll be allowed to write columns in newspapers or to feature in a drive-time radio interview panel, but only so long as we refrain from saying certain things. And those things are clearly and unambiguously preaching the gospel. If we preach that, if we say what we actually think and really believe, well, we won't be invited back because those topics are not acceptable. They're banned from that kind of discussion. Even in church pulpits, there are things today that preachers feel nervous about saying, feel that they cannot or perhaps dare not say. We may still say them, of course, when the Word of God drives us to, but often we'll say them softly, shall we say. We'll say them with a covering or shroud of qualification and apology. And when we get to this point, to the point of self-censorship, there really is no need for them to come and lock us up. We've saved them the trouble by posting a guard on our own lips. And I suspect that this is one of the main purposes of the loud and violent protests that attend any attempt by people to speak their mind in our culture against the prevailing orthodoxy. 
The purpose is not so much to shut down one particular event, which is often a very small event, often with a tiny number of people who may have spoken at it or who may have heard its message. The purpose is broader. It's to create dramatic media moments that send a very clear message. Don't try to voice an alternative opinion. If you do, we'll do this to you as well. It's just not worth it. And so little wonder that we're very tempted to keep our mouths shut and our heads down. And if someone does dare to stand up and preach in a blunt, bold way that draws the ire of the mob, well, our temptation is just to quietly edge away. Kind of like Phygelus and Hermogenes did, and all of Asia, as Paul says, in his second letter to Timothy in the first chapter. I've been thinking about the opening chapters of this letter recently, especially in light of the increasingly marginal place that Christian teaching has within the acceptable political sphere of our society. And the verse I've been especially mulling over relates to the gospel being chained up or restricted by the oppressive structures of society. Paul is speaking about his gospel, and he says, This is the gospel for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. The word of God is not chained up. That's from 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9. And I suppose I've always thought of Paul's feistiness in this verse as a kind of defiant assertion of his trust in God and his power. You can lock me up. You can silence me. He's saying you can treat me like a criminal. You can exclude me from every platform and opportunity for preaching the gospel although even then I'll evangelize my fellow prisoners and guards. But God can't be locked up. His word is unchained. It will run free. It will prevail because God and his purposes always prevail. They won't be thwarted. The words of Charles Spurgeon come to mind. It's one of those very frequent quotes in sermons and on the internet, and I've been trying to chase down the accurate and original version, and that's very difficult. But it goes something like this. Defend the Bible, Spurgeon says, I'd as soon defend a lion. You don't defend the Bible. You open its cage and let it roar. But what if the cage is locked shut? How exactly does the word of God continue to be unbound, unchained, if its proclaimers are in chains? How can we publicly preach the gospel if public platforms are denied to us? How is the gospel going to win if its preachers are locked up or, in our case, locked out or deplatformed or cancelled or censored? I think Paul's own answer to this question is found earlier in the chapter and in the letter. He has passed the one true gospel on to Timothy, and he's urgently pressing Timothy to stick with it, to stay the course. Others have deserted, says Paul, but you, Timothy... You must be strong and join in the suffering that comes from being a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. Don't be ashamed of me and my gospel, he says. Don't be like Phygelus and Hermogenes. Be like the admirable Onesiphorus who supported and refreshed me. In other words, Paul is saying, I may be in chains, but Timothy, you are not. The continued guarding and spread of the gospel is now in your hands. But it's not just in Timothy's hands. Timothy is to pass the message on to others as well and to pass on to others the task of gospel teaching. 
these are the famous faithful men of 2 Timothy 2.2. And what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. In other words, the word of God is not chained and can't be chained because Paul is not the only link in the gospel chain, although I think I'm mangling the metaphor a bit when I say that. But the point is clear enough. There's Onesiphorus and the rest of the apostolic band. There's Timothy, Paul's spiritual son and successor. But there are also all those to whom Timothy passes this task on. And those to whom the faithful men also commit the message and mission of the gospel through their teaching. And so on. All of them, and all of us, are called to the same basic work of the gospel. And in 2 Timothy, it seems to be a fourfold task. To be faithful to that gospel, to steadfastly guard its truth and live out its truth. To speak that gospel, to teach and preach and communicate the word of God to those around us through whatever opportunities God provides. To suffer for the gospel because speaking and living out the gospel will always bring opposition and trouble. And to teach and train and equip others to do the same. To pass on this same gospel life and mission to others. God's word is unchained and continues to spread and do its work through a kind of guerrilla army of faithful gospel servants. They can't lock us all up and they can't keep us all quiet. If they exclude us from TV, well, we'll start a radio station. If we're locked out of radio, we'll start a podcast. If Apple kicks us off their podcast platform, we'll build our own. Christians have always invented new ways of communicating the gospel, or we've subverted existing ones, in order to keep the message going out. But more importantly, even if every conceivable means of print and electronic communication were somehow denied to us, that wouldn't stop us either. We'd walk the streets, we'd knock on doors, we'd gather in homes and garages, we'd invite our neighbours to join us, we'd launch underground churches and be ready to be taken away by the authorities when they found us, as of course our brothers and sisters in China and other parts of the world have done for decades. God's word is unchained because it doesn't depend on the human structures and authorities of our world, which are always and have always been opposed to God. The gospel is spread by people, by God's own people, as they engage in the worldwide mission of Jesus together. This has always been our strength and our advantage as Christians, although we sometimes forget it. Christians love people, we gather people together, and we work together as brothers and sisters in service of our Lord. We build learning communities that we call churches, communities that teach and guard and spread the gospel and suffer for the gospel. We reach out to friends and families. We build connections with local communities. We see spiritual deserts where the gospel isn't known, and we go and live there so that we can plant and water. Our great strength is that we are the people of God, by whom God continues to gather and grow his people by his word and by his spirit. Our strength, to use a metaphor someone once used somewhere, is in the vine, not in the trellis. 
If the authorities shut down or destroy part of our trellis, say the ability to communicate through electronic media, well, we'll just build another one of some kind because we know that the life and the growth is in the vine. It's in people sharing the gospel with people. And so we shouldn't be downhearted when the rulers and authorities gang up against us, when they lock us up or lock us out. In fact, we should rejoice because that's how they treated our forefathers. It's certainly how they treated Jesus and the apostles and those that followed them. Our challenge, like Timothy's, is not to be ashamed of the gospel, but to proclaim it, to join in suffering for it, and in particular, to keep passing it on, to keep teaching and training others to do the same. God has his elect, he has his people, and he will draw them to himself through the ministry of his own people as they speak his word in all kinds of ways. And this, as Paul says, is really worth suffering for. As he says in the very next verse, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Well, there are some thoughts about how God's word is never chained and never bound and always achieves the purpose for which God sends it out. And that's because God works through his people. And no matter what the authorities and rulers do to shut us up or lock us out, God will always have his people and will use us to spread his word. I hope you found that useful and that it spurs you not only to keep spreading that word, but to train others to do the same. I guess that's part of the big point, isn't it? We need to keep multiplying the number of people, the number of voices and lips that are sharing the gospel with those around them and who are part of that great task and project, the great commission that we have as God's people. As always, please get in touch and let me know what you think, how you respond to the kind of hostility or the sense of being shut down or excluded that seems to be becoming more prominent in our culture towards Christianity and the gospel, and perhaps some of the encouragements you've also discovered as you've worked with people simply to share the gospel with others through your local church or through fellowship with different Christians. Love to hear from you on all those things. Uh, thanks to those of you who have been writing in regularly, and there's a steady stream of great emails and questions and feedback that comes in each week. And I'd like to get back to one of those emails now. I had a couple of questions come in in relation to our post a couple of weeks ago about our God-given desires. And you can go back and have a look at that post. I think it's called Deepest Desires and Jokes About Jesus. And the section of that post about our deepest desires kind of critiqued the idea that our desires should be the starting point for our evangelistic method, that we should build on the idea of what people deeply desire and kind of present the gospel as a solution to those desires. And in response, Dave wrote in with an excellent set of questions and thoughts. I won't read his whole letter, which is lengthy. I'll give you the highlights. His main concern, he says with the argument, is that it just seems to fail what I would call the evangelical pub test. Given that the prophets and Jesus himself seem to use this kind of approach 
or something similar on several occasions. And he quotes a few examples, uh, such as in Jeremiah 2.13, where Israel is critiqued for having dug their own cisterns that don't hold water, having rejected God, the spring of living water. Does that statement have power unless sinful human beings have a deep thirst for something, for living water? And similarly, in John 4, Jesus holds out the promise of living water, which is something deeper and more lasting than physical water. Um, we could also point to examples such as in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 11, 28 to 30, the famous verses where Jesus promises to give rest to those who are weary and heavy laden, for his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Are we to say that sinful human beings can't long for rest and relief because all of their faculties are warped from sin? Uh, Dave goes on to say, I'm skipping a little bit, that it's interesting that the above examples revolve around basic human necessities for life rather than desires for the good pleasures of creation. Maybe there's something here to nuance the critique. That is, maybe the biblical way to go is not to tease out a desire for a good thing, but the drive within all of us for life. And what we can do is highlight the pain we feel when we're not experiencing life as it's meant to be. Then we can show that Jesus and the gospel of atonement is the remedy we need to move from the lack to the satisfaction. Uh, if the gospel is about reconciliation, where reconciliation is setting things in right relationship as they should be. So when people are, aren't reconciled to God, they'll experience the pain of that, and it can be a tool of evangelism to expose that in people's lives. Uh, and Dave goes on with uh, some related and similar thoughts and hopes that these thoughts offer something of value. Yes, they do, Dave, uh, because I think they highlight the kind of distinction that I was trying to make in that post and in another one that I wrote previously that I also referred to, which is to say that there is a way of critiquing and pointing out the problems and difficulties that people are having in their life, the, the lack of certain things that you mention without falling into the problem of building a gospel around desire in the way that I was seeking to critique in that last post. And the problem and the, the central issue is really whether we're talking about the symptoms or the disease. We can point out the symptoms of rejecting God and rebelling against him. The fact that this brings great weariness rather than rest, that it leads to death, not life, that it requires forgiveness instead of judgment. And so, Yes, we can offer life and forgiveness and eternity and rest for people's souls, as Jesus himself does. We can say, save yourselves from this crooked generation, as Peter does, which doesn't make much sense unless people on the whole would prefer to be saved rather than to perish. But the problem comes when we focus on these symptoms of our rebellion and don't deal with the underlying disease, because the underlying problem and disease is our self-focus, our rebellion against God, and our turning towards ourselves in our pride. And so if we shape the whole gospel offer and gospel presentation that we're putting together around fixing the desires and problems people have in their lives, we risk not attacking the disease, but feeding it, so that Jesus becomes a servant of my desires and my problems rather than the Lord and Saviour and, and judge. In other words, if we don't end up preaching judgment and salvation from judgment, then we haven't gotten to the disease and to the gospel. You've got to get to the disease and prescribe the gospel antidote, which is to believe in the word of promise, to believe the gospel. 
And the problem or danger in desire-based preaching is not to get around to this. Well, Dave, I hope that's useful in some ways. And thank you again for writing and for the thoughtful and really worthwhile thoughts that you shared. Thanks again for that. If you want to send in your own question or feedback or thoughts on this issue or on any other, including the one we've discussed today, you can just send it to tonyjpain at me.com, tonyjpain at me.com. Or if you receive the Two Ways newsletter, you can just hit reply to that email and let me know what you think. Well, that's about it for this week. Thanks once again for being here on Two Ways News. It's a pleasure and joy as always to be speaking with you. I look forward to seeing you again next time. I'm Tony Payne. Bye for now.